Lord, please help us right now as we open up this text to see the ministry of Paul and how we can be a follower not only of Jesus but of Paul. We can imitate him and, and what he did in our own lives and find you to be faithful. So, Lord, open up this text to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. So, 21. Yeah, verse 21. So, this morning we're going to embark on a study of Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders. And I find this message that he gives to them so rich that I don't want to just rush through it. There's so much meat here for us to be built up by and to learn from that I want to take it rather slowly. So it'll probably take three or four weeks for us to work our way through the rest of Acts chapter 20. Um, and so one of the ways to help us think through Paul's speech, you might say, or his address to these Ephesian elders is chapter 20, verses 17 to 21. Paul reviews the past. He reviews his ministry to them in the past. In verses 22 to 27, he gives them a testimony of the present. And then in verses 28 to 38, he gives them a warning about the future. So there's a review of the past, a testimony of the present, and then a warning about the future. And this morning, we're just going to look at the first section. He reviews the past. What Paul does here is he goes over with them what he had done while he was among them. He, he restates what his ministry was like when he was living amongst the Ephesians. And we had this back in chapter 19. Back then, we studied Paul's ministry in the city of Ephesus in chapter 19. And you recall the amazing things that were happening? For example... So many people were being converted out of witchcraft and sorcery that they came and burned all their books and it was worth about seven and a half million dollars when they compiled the value of all those satanic books that were burned. Um, amazing miracles are happening so that people would grab Paul's apron that he took off from working on tents and they'd go and lay it on a demonized person or a sick person and they would be delivered of the demons or they would be healed. So amazing miracles are happening. Probably thousands were being converted in the city of Ephesus during this time. Paul's teaching publicly from the school of Tyrannus during the day. And his disciples, we're not told this specifically, but I, I'm speculating that his disciples who are being taught are going out. And they're starting to preach in the surrounding villages. And that's where the church of Colossae is planted. Um, and Laodicea and the other surrounding cities to Ephesus. These churches are springing up as Paul's disciples are bearing the gospel. So lots of things are happening when Paul's in Ephesus. And today he's just kind of reviewing to the elders his past, his past among them. Um, but let's, before we dig into the, the text itself, let's take a look at the surrounding context. What's going on here? Well, Remember, Paul is on his way to Jerusalem, and he wants to be in Jerusalem by the Feast of Pentecost. And so he's, a little, he's kind of on a deadline. He can't stay too long in any one place, or else he's going to miss getting to Jerusalem in time for the feast. And so he's in a hurry. Um, and, and it's for that reason that he doesn't go into Ephesus did you remember what we just read? He stopped at Miletus. He didn't go to Ephesus. Miletus was right on the coast. Ephesus, 36 miles away. So he, pal he sails past Ephesus to Miletus, docks there, and sends somebody on an errand 36 miles to get the elders to come to him. Now, I think Paul knows that if he takes the time to travel by land all the way to Ephesus, he is so popular that he's going to be stopped in his tracks. Everybody's going to be wanting Paul to pray for their healing or to deliver uh, someone who's demonized or to preach the gospel. And they love him so much that they're going to want him to stay and Paul wouldn't have the heart to leave them that he's going to miss getting to Jerusalem on time. So he doesn't go to Ephesus. The next best, best thing of going to the people of Ephesus is to have their leaders come to him. So that's what he does. He sends an errand boy to Ephesus with the message, elders, Paul needs you right away. Drop everything and come. You know, they didn't have phones back then, to just or internet or texting. Somebody had to go physically and tell them, come to Paul right away. And, and think about that for a minute. I mean, these people had jobs. Probably many of them were self-employed, or maybe they had farms that they were working on. 
it, was, it wouldn't be an easy thing just to drop everything, leave your family, leave your job. I mean, they didn't get vacation pay back then. <laughs> just to leave it and take off probably for about a week. Uh, that, that's going to be a real financial hit on the family. But, but what I love is that their concern for the kingdom of God was more of a priority than anything else. And they were willing just to drop it and go on a moment's notice when Paul needed him to come. So that, I think that's admirable. This sermon that Paul gives here, and I'm going to call it a sermon, I, I think it was extremely important because it was the only sp speech in the book of Acts which was addressed to the leaders of the church. All the other speeches we find in the book of Acts are addressed usually in the synagogue. There are a few other ones, like when Paul was on Mars Hill. But they're addressed to non-Christians. And Paul is trying to reason with them that Jesus is the Christ, he's the Messiah, and you need to give your lives to him and repent of sin and put your faith in the Lord Jesus. So all the other addresses are to non-Christians. Here we have Paul speaking to the elders of the church at Ephesus. So we get a whole different flavor here than in any of his other sermons in the book of Acts. Now, let's just notice a, f a few brief things about the elders. Look at verse 17. It says, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. Okay, so the people that came to him were the elders. Just keep that in mind. Now look at verse 28. Paul says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you, what? Overseers. He doesn't say elders. He doesn't say the Holy Spirit has made you elders. No, he says the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Interesting. And then he goes on to say, to shepherd the church of God. Now, what's the other word for shepherd? Guide. Not guide, no. Pastor. A pastor is a shepherd. Same, same concept, same idea. Yeah, yeah. That's what a pastor is. He's a shepherd. That's the meaning of pastor. You didn't, didn't realize that? No. Yeah. So, so take these three terms. Elder, overseer, pastor... They're all applied to the same people. Do you see that? They're not three different types of people in the Bible. They're the same person. Paul calls to him the elders, and he calls them overseers, and he calls them pastors that are shepherding the church. Now, this is different from a lot of churches today. They will have a pastor at the top, and then he's got a board of elders under him, so they're like, the, the elders are not the pastor, and the pastors are not the elders. And the word overseer in the Bible is the same word for bishop. There's a lot of churches that have a bishop, and he goes above the pastor. <laughs> so you've got the bishop, and he's supposed to oversee all the different pastors of the churches in his region. So you've got the bishop on top, then you've got the pastor of each local church, and under him you've got so many elders. But that's completely unbiblical. The Bible, as we're seeing right now in our Bibles, they're the same people. The bishop is the pastor. He is the overseer. He is the elder. They're all the same person. It's just talking about different terms. So if you look at the man, he's an elder. He's a spiritually mature person. He's a spiritually mature man. He's an elder in the Lord. If you look at his ministry, he's both an overseer and a pastor. So when it comes to his ministry, he oversees the work of the church of God. In other words, he's giving direction to the, the, the church and its functions and how, it's, uh, how it functions together. So he oversees that, and at the same time, he's a pastor, meaning he has a shepherd's heart. He cares for the people. He wants them to thrive spiritually. He prays for his people. He counsels with them when they need help. So he's both a pastor and an overseer and a spiritually mature individual. You see that? So it's the same person just looked at in three different perspectives. That's just important so that we understand that that's why at the bridge here we don't have one pastor with many elders and we don't have a, a bishop and a pastor and elders. They're all the same person. Okay, so Paul calls to him the elders of the church. And we've already said this is a 36-mile journey. It would take probably two days to make this journey on foot, or even if you're riding a camel or something, it's going to take about 
two days to get there, two days to get back. That's four days of traveling, and then the time with Paul, maybe several days for there. So th this is like a, a week, or m maybe maybe more, a week away from their family and their, their, their jobs. Somebody once said that one of the greatest abilities in the kingdom of God is availability. And I, th I like that. Are we available like they were? They were willing to drop their jobs and leave their families and just go when Paul needed to talk to them. Are we available when the Lord wants us to do something? Or do we say no? No, Lord, I'm, I've already got a, a, an agenda in mind. I already know what I'm going to do. I'm not changing it for anything. I can kind of be that way. I, this checks me because I kind of am, am a <laughs> disciplined person. I've got my list of things I want to accomplish, and man, I want to accomplish them. But I need to be more flexible because the Lord may want to break into my schedule and yours too and change that from time to time. So really what we have in Acts chapter 20 is like a pastor's conference. Have you ever heard of a pastor's conference? I've been to a whole bunch of them in my lifetime. Pastors all come together and then they've got keynote speakers that'll get up and they'll address the pastors on things related to their, their lives and their ministries. I've, I've gone to dozens of these. Um, Kind of many of them, Calvary Chapel put them on, and then we had some up in Reno with Acts 29. But basically, this is a pastor's conference, and Paul's the keynote speaker. And he's got all these elders of the church at Ephesus surrounding him. Now, I wish there was more information given to us about these elders. Like, we know that the, the church met in homes, but here we have the elders of the whole city come together. And with all the thousands of converts in Ephesus, you can't put them all in one house. So there's got to be many house churches that are there in the city of Ephesus. And here you've got the elders of those house churches. Well, did we have one elder per house church? Or two? Or maybe in some cases zero? I just don't know. That's where I wish the Bible gave us more details. Because it would be really interesting to know how they actually set this all up. All we know is that when you came to all the Christians there in the city of Ephesus, these were the elders. That were, it was their job to oversee all those house churches and make sure it was all going according to God's plan. Okay? So they come together to Paul, and Paul's speaking to them now. And basically what Paul does here is he shares about his ministry to God, his ministry to the church, and his ministry to the lost. So we have those three things going on. And that's what I want you to see, and tr see if you can make application. Now, you're not an apostle, neither am I, but are there ways that we can make application when we look at what he was doing to what we do in our lives? So that's what I want you to be thinking. So first of all, Paul's ministry to God. Look at verse, well, we'll just pick it up in 17. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called him the elders of the church, and when they had come to him, he said to them, and now he begins his address, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time. And here it is, serving the Lord. That was his ministry to God. He served God. He, he puts it in a single word, service. If Paul were to sum up his, his ministry to God, it was serving him. So basically that means he was doing what God had called him to do. As a servant, God is his master. He presents himself as a servant to God and says, what would you have me to do? And the Lord gave him very specific instructions of how he was to serve him there in Ephesus. The word ministry means service. And the word minister means servant. Sometimes we get the idea that a minister is a really high-powered, important, special person in the church. He's the minister. No, he's the servant. He's the slave. We should, we should, we should take all these people that we put up on pedestals and knock the pedestal out. They're, they're all just Christians. They're, they're like us. <laughs> they're men of flesh like we are. They're no better than you. They've been given a different role and a different responsibility, but they are people. They're human beings like we are. And we, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't lift them up and glorify them and worship them and any of that stuff. The minister is the servant of the church. That's what he is. So Paul says that he saw himself as a servant. He was serving the Lord. 
we should see our ser ourselves as servants of Christ. That's what we are. This is the only reasonable response of a disciple, to submit himself as a servant of Jesus Christ. So if Jesus is the Lord, if he's the master and we are servants, then it only makes sense that our job, our role in life, is to find a way to serve the master, which means to obey his calling on your life. Obedience. A servant had no rights, did he? He didn't have a right to get up when he wanted to, go to bed when he wanted to, stop working when he wanted to, eat what he wanted to eat. He had no rights at all. The master told him everything. He dictated his entire life. And as servants, we don't have rights. I know we, we all, always talk about, hey, it's my right for this or that. You're a servant. You're a slave. You've given up your rights. God has the rights, not you. <laughs> your right is to obey Jesus Christ, your Lord. That's your calling in life. A servant would take the most meaning or menial jobs, wouldn't he? And he would perform, them, perform those jobs willingly. And we are called to be humble servants, willing to take whatever menial job the Lord gives us, and to do that willingly and even joyfully. And we can do that if we know that we're actually serving him. That makes all the difference in the world. I think so often we assert our self-importance. We talk about, hey, I need more self-esteem. I, I don't want to have to do anything that's beneath me. You get rid of all that when you become a Christian. There's nothing beneath you. You're at the bottom. He's at the top. And whatever job he gives you, that's your job, whatever it happens to be. So Paul says he was serving the Lord. He didn't say he was serving the apostles. He doesn't talk about serving the church at Antioch who sent him out on this missionary journey. He doesn't even talk about serving the people of Ephesus. He was serving the Lord when he did all the things that he did. Now, of course, secondarily, he did serve the church. He did serve the lost, but he didn't think that way. In all the things that he was doing, he was thinking, I'm serving the Lord when I'm doing this particular thing. So... When Linda calls you up and says, oh, just by the way, this, this Sunday it's your turn to serve the kids in Sunday school, if you have the idea, well, I'd rather, really rather be in the service, but I guess I did tell her I would help, so all right, I really don't want to, but I'll do it. That's not really serving the Lord, is it? If you knew that by serving those kids you're actually serving the Lord, that would elevate and dignify whatever you happen to be doing that particular Sunday. It would give a real value because you're, you're actually serving the king of the universe. It might be a very meaning, menial task that you've been given, but that doesn't matter. The, 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 the really true thing about it is you're actually serving Jesus Christ. So when Debbie and I clean up our house on Saturdays, we need to remember, I'm serving the Lord when I'm doing this work. Um, when you pick up people and give them a ride to church, you're serving the Lord. Not just that person. You're serving the Lord. Remember that when you're doing it. When you prepare and bring food for our fellowship meal afterwards, you're serving the Lord. When you take a, a meal to a sick family, you're serving the Lord. When you invite another family over to your home to share a meal, you're serving the Lord. When you share the gospel with somebody, you're serving the Lord. When you lead your family in worship or in prayer, you're serving the Lord. And when you help your spouse or your child when they're sick and you take over some of their duties or responsibilities, you're actually serving the Lord. See, do you actually think like that in your daily life, day by day? We need to start thinking that way. It, it will change things. I, I'm going to share Debbie's story. She has a story where... A friend from church asked her to come over and help her get her house cleaned up. And so Debbie went to help her, and then the friend left. She went on some errands, and she was gone a long time. And Debbie was left there by herself cleaning up this friend's house. And she started to get more and more resentful. Where is she? What, what am I doing? This isn't my job. <laughs> you know, she's gone on these errands, and here I am doing all of her dirty work. And then she, she told me, she started to think, well, wait a minute. Who am I serving here? I'm really serving the Lord. And she, she told me afterwards that that changed her whole attitude. It changed everything, right? Did I get the story right? Yeah. And instead of a, a resentment, she started to feel joyful. 
in doing the same job. She's doing the very same job she used to be doing, but her whole perspective had changed. And so if we can just get that perspective right, it's going to change how we feel about what we do. Amen? Amen? So what would happen if Jesus himself walked through that front door into this room? We would be falling all over ourselves trying to find something we could do to serve him. Like, can I take your coat, Jesus? <laughs> can I give you my chair? Where's the best seat in the house? What can I do for you? Would you like a glass of water, Lord? <laughs> you know, we would, we, we would do everything we could to serve him. Well, folks, we have all these brothers and sisters, and whenever we serve the least of them, we're serving Jesus Christ. So think about that, that whenever you serve some person, you're actually serving the Lord. Matthew 25, when we did it to the least of these, my brethren, when we invited them into our home, or when we, um, what are all the things he talks about there? Yeah, visiting the sick, clothing those that were naked. All of those things, when we do that to another person, we're do actually doing it to Christ. There is no dichotomy between the sacred and the secular. If, if, you, if you think in terms of, well, this is Sunday, and this is the sacred time of the week, and then Monday morning, that's the secular time of the week, you got it all wrong. For the Christian, there's no, there's no secular. It's all sacred. Whether you're playing with your kids or cleaning up the house or working on your job or whatever it is you're doing, you may need to do that unto the Lord so it becomes sacred. There, there's a sacred umbrella over all of our life. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God, Paul says. Okay, so Paul looked at himself as serving the Lord. How did he serve the Lord? He tells us it was with humility, tears, and trials. So verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility. So at first glance, it might seem to us like Paul's on an ego trip. Like, hey, look at me. I was such a humble person when I came among you. And I think that's the... Of course, Paul isn't doing that. <laughs> he's not trying to get them to exalt him. What he's doing is he's trying to help these leaders. As go the leaders, so goes the people. Paul wants the leaders to be strong, godly men. And so he's pointing to an example that he thinks is worthy of their emulation. And he wants these leaders to be humble men. And so he points, look at how I lived among you. You can learn from that. I want you to to take a posture of humility like I sought to take a posture of humility when I was among you. So, what is humility? Humility is actually defined for us pretty well in Philippians chapter 2. Paul says in Philippians 2.5, Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, you know what? I got that wrong. Back up two verses to verse 3. This is what I wanted. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, there it is, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. That's what a humble person does. He regards other people as more important than himself. So humility is being willing to lower yourself and lift others up. It's being willing to take the last position rather than insist on having the first position or having the best of everything. You're, you're willing to, to give the best to others. You're willing to take a meaning, um, I get that word wrong, menial job while others don't have to. It's, 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 it's the person who's willing to lower themselves. So Paul said he was serving the Lord with all humility. A godly leader must never use the people to serve himself. That would be a proud leader. He must be someone who becomes the servant of all, like Jesus Christ was. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, and lay down his life a ransom for many. I was in a Bible study once, and one of the people at that Bible study were they were telling me the story about how she had attended a church and she had become kind of jaded and a bit upset because at this particular church, the pastor didn't carry his own Bible. <laughs> he got out of his car and the elders rushed to the door, picked up his Bible and carried it for him into the building. And this, this pastor was driving a Rolls Royce and his people were filled with poor people. And some of them were getting the lights turned out because they couldn't pay their energy bills. And he's driving this, you know, Rolls Royce. And she just, she was having a hard time with this. What do I do with this information? <laughs> and, 
He d- it didn't seem like he was a humble servant. The, the, the pastor shouldn't be a celebrity. Lift it up, some kind of a celebrity. That's what I think is one of the downsides to the, to the mega church that's come, you know, you've got this guy on top who's, who's the celebrity and he's almost idolized by the people. I mean, that's not the will of God. God wants humble servant leaders in his church. And Paul was approachable. I noticed that about him too. In verse 18, it says, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time. He was among the people. He was with them. He didn't seclude himself off. Some pastors say, well, I'm just too busy to be able to meet with any of the people, so I'm just going to have all my assistant pastors do that kind of stuff. I'm just going to do the preaching. I'll come out on Sunday. I'll stand up and preach, and then I'm going to go behind the door and lock it, and that's it. I'm done for the day. (laughs) Paul was with the people. In verse 20 says, he taught publicly and from house to house. He wasn't too good to go into a poor person's home where there were five or ten people and teach those small handful of people the gospel. He didn't see himself as so important that he couldn't do something like that. We also know that Paul, um, Paul was so well loved by these people that when he left, verse 37 says, the people wept and repeatedly kissed him. So he, he wasn't a guy that you would look at from afar but have no relationship with. They, they, they had a really sincere love for him so that they, they cried, they wept when he left because they didn't think they'd ever see him again. In fact, they didn't. That was the last time he was ever there. So he, he emulated for them a life of humble service. It reminds me of a time when our family, I probably told this story before, but bears repeating, we, we were visiting a church in San Francisco. We lived in Hayward. We got to San Francisco, and my, son, my firstborn son, Josiah, had a tummy ache. And during the worship service, he threw up all over the floor. And of course, we are embarrassed. And what do we do now? (laughs) There's all this vomit on the floor. And there's a guy in front of us who turned around and saw what had happened. And he ran to the bathroom, got a bunch of paper towels, came back, knelt down on the ground, and cleaned up my son's vomit. Talk about a humble servant. I don't even know the guy's name. But what a great example of humble service that guy was. He wasn't above, too good to be able to do such a terrible, I mean, what a disgusting task, but he took it on willingly. So, just a a good example. Humility is the indispensable quality of a godly leader. If a leader has no humility, he ought not be a leader in the church. Now, Paul says he served the Lord with all humility, secondly, with tears. And what I think he means by that is with compassion, tears of compassion. Why did Paul shed tears? Well, let me just read you a few texts. Philippians 3, 18 and 19. Paul says that he wept over those who were enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. Paul shed tears for people that were defecting from the Christian faith and giving themselves over to the lusts of the flesh and no longer serving the Lord. In Acts 20, verse 31, he says, Be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. The word admonish is talking about warning them. So he knew the danger was coming and he warned them with tears streaming down his eyes that they would not get duped by the the people that would be coming in, the wolves in sheep's clothing that would try to destroy them. And in 1 Corinthians, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians 2.4, he writes, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not that you should be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. So when Paul had to rebuke them, which he did in the book of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, he shed tears while he's writing. He's he's not an unfeeling guy who's just writing a letter. No, he he knows these people. He's ministered among them. They know him. And he's, he's weeping as he's writing out the letter. So in all these examples, Paul's weeping not because of his own pain or his own heartache, but because he cared and had concern for these people that he's writing to. He loved them. 
He got emotional. He got personally involved in their lives. He didn't see himself as a mere professional. He didn't see the ministry as a job. Right? He didn't seclude himself in some ivory tower and just keep himself away from the people. He was among the people, weeping as he ministered to them. That's the kind of, that's kind of a person he was. And he's wanting these elders to share that same personal concern and compassion for the people, to love the people, to shepherd them like a shepherd would love sheep. So he served the Lord with all humility, with tears, and thirdly, with trials. And just as tears points to his compassion, trials points to his perseverance. What kind of trials was he talking about? Well, back in Acts chapter 20, he tells us, verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews. Those were his trials. The Jews were always plotting against Paul. They would run him out of, out of town again and again. And when he went to the next town, they would chase after him. And on one occasion, he was stoned. They thought he was actually dead. I mean, there was riots whenever Paul would be preaching in a particular place. So through the plots of the Jews, Paul had these trials that he had to contend with. Now, he could have given up and gone back home and said, forget this. This isn't what I signed up for. But he didn't. He kept going. He persevered through those trials. He kept on serving the Lord, even when it was hard. Even when it was painful, he kept on going. And so this tells me a godly leader will suffer, but he will not give up. He will persevere in the midst of suffering. The English reformer Thomas Cranmer said, none of us goes to heaven on a feather bed. All of us are going to share in our portion of sufferings in this life. Now, are you going to continue to serve the Lord when that happens, or are you going to stop? That's the question. So why does Paul remind the elders about these sufferings? It's because they're going to have them too. In 1 Corinthians 15, 32, he said, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. You ever wonder what that means? Like, what was he talking about? Are these literal wild beasts that he fought with? Well, we have no historical record of them having a coliseum where they had the wild beasts in Ephesus. I think he's probably using it figuratively, symbolically. He's talking about the people, the Jews that were opposing him. They're like wild, savage beasts that were always trying to hurt and destroy him. He had to fight with them. He had to contend with them there at Ephesus. And then in Acts 20, 29, he said, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. These aren't literal wolves. These are people that are acting like wolves, and they're trying to destroy the sheep and eat them up. Paul says, you elders, after I go, you're going to have a hard time of it. These people are going to come in, and they're going to attack, and they're going to fight with you and contend with you and give you no end of grief. Are you going to stick in there? Are you going to persevere in the midst of these trials, or are you going to ditch and just give up and say, I'm done? So he wants them to persevere in the midst of the trials. So since Paul served the Lord, so should we. Since Paul served the Lord with humility, so should we. Since Paul served the Lord with tears, so should we. And since Paul served through trials and persevered, so should we. He's helping us to see what a godly life is like. And it's not only for elders. You don't have to be an elder to apply these principles to your life. This is for all of us. So that's Paul's ministry to God. Serving with humility, tears, and trials. How did he minister to the church? Well, look at verse 20. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So I would sum up Paul's ministry to the church in one word, teaching. Paul's ministry to God in one word is service. His ministry to the church in one word, teaching. His ministry to the lost in one word, 
evangelizing. So serving the Lord, teaching the church, evangelizing the lost. That's what you could break up his life in those three categories. So let's talk about his ministry to the church. First of all, where was he teaching? He says here, publicly and from house to house. He's got these two locations going on. Publicly was probably the school of Tyrannus. He taught there from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. every day when the siesta was happening. They took over that school. His disciples came to him. People were probably, some were being converted, but his disciples are being, uh, they're being taught the word of God, and they're being inspired and mobilized to go out and just take that same gospel to the surrounding areas, and churches are springing up. It's, it's a revival taking place there within the whole region of Ephesus. So you've got these two locations happening. What are the, what's the style of his teaching? Well, Luke uses three different words here to describe Paul's ministry of the word. He uses the word declaring, testifying, and teaching. And those are three different words that mean three different things. So declaring, this would be similar to the word preaching in verse 25. He says, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, declaring the kingdom. So that's a word where you announce something. You're not necessarily teaching where you're answering questions and dissecting and analyzing something. You're just announcing something. Teaching, this word speaks of explaining or instructing, taking something apart, analyzing the components, putting it back together. So it's something that's looking at something and helping his hearer to really understand it to the best of their ability. It's not simply announcing something as true, but telling them why it is true and how to understand that. So a preacher proclaims the word, a teacher teaches it. And there's a difference between explaining how to play baseball and announcing that the San Francisco Giants have just won the World Series. You see, there's two different things. There's a difference between teaching in the church and preaching. There's a difference between what happens at halftime during a football game when the analyst comes out and he starts diagramming on the chalkboard and showing you how these play is supposed to go. So there's teaching. There's a difference between that and what the announcer is saying during the game. And it's a touchdown, you know. <laughs> so he's announcing something. So that's the second word Paul uses. Um, declaring and then teaching and thirdly testifying. So when does somebody testify? And that's right. And when would he be called upon to do that? In a court of law. When he is a witness to something that has happened. He is called on to testify. Folks, we are witnesses. If, if you're a Christian, God has changed your life. He's made you into a new creature. You are called to testify of the truth that you now know. And Paul says that he did it solemnly. Did you see that? Verse 21, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks. The subject matter is so serious and so great, and the consequences of receiving the gospel or rejecting it are so great that you can't do it in a flippant, humorous manner and be taken seriously. That's why I, I don't think that pastors should try to act like stand-up comics or comedians. They should get up and put on their comedy show. Because the people are going to think, well, what he's talking about isn't very important. Look, he's joking about it all over the place. He's not serious about it, so why should we be? The consequences of what we talk about are eternal heaven or eternal hell. There's nothing more serious than that. And there's nothing more serious that we need to give our attention to making sure we avoid hell and are received into heaven. And so a preacher ought not to glibly pass his 30 or 45 minutes up in the pulpit just telling joke after joke. He, he's, he doesn't want the people looking at him like he's a clown. He wants the people saying, that man's like a prophet. He's speaking the very word of God to me. So he solemnly testified to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So he needs, the, the preacher must be in blood earnest about he's talking about, what he's talking about. What's the content of what Paul taught? Verse 20. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. There's the content. Now what is profitable? 2 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is inspired of God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for rebuke, for training in righteousness. All of scripture is profitable. Paul says, I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. If it would be beneficial to you and to your Christian life, I taught it to you. I didn't leave anything out. I didn't hold anything back because I knew you weren't going to like it. I told you everything. I gave you your peas as well as your uh, hot fudge sundae. You got it all. You got all the stuff that was nourishing and the stuff that was tintillating to your spiritual senses. I gave you everything that was profitable. So Paul's goal was not popularity. If it was, he would have held some of these things back. Because not everything we are called upon to teach in the Word of God is, is popular or is something that we like necessarily. Some of it's hard truth. <laughs> Let me list a few of those things that I think are, are hard truths. The total depravity of man. God's sovereign election and predestination. That's a hard truth. Eternal hell for the unrepentant. Jesus Christ is the only way to God. The evil of culturally accepted sins, like racism, abortion, homosexuality, and transgenderism. The fact that the gate is narrow that leads to life, and few people find it. That's a hard truth. And the truth about the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Folks, these things are in the Bible, but they're not the things that people love to hear about. And if you want to grow a big church, you would avoid talking about some of these things. Paul said, I didn't avoid any of them. I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything I knew would be profitable for your souls. And that's got to be our approach as well. If you have a, a friend, Christian or otherwise, do not hesitate from speaking the truth to your friend. Don't think, well, I, gosh, if I say that, they may not come to Christ. That may be the very means God will use to bring them to Christ, to convict them of their sin. Teach them what God has said, all of it. So God isn't happy with preachers who go around avoiding, ignoring, or candy-coating his word. He wants preachers that will deliver it exactly the way he said it. How would you feel if you were a soldier and you had been badly wounded, you didn't even know if you were going to survive, and you send a courier with a message to your wife, and the, courier, the courier's job is to, to deliver the message that you've been badly wounded, it's not sure whether you're going to survive or not, but he doesn't want to upset your wife, and so he says, well, your, your husband sprained his ankle, but he'll be fine. How would you feel about that guy? He's not doing his job, right? And he's not delivering the truth. And those of us who call ourselves Christians, God has called us to speak truth to one another. Truth. All of it. Okay. Paul's ministry to the lost now. We've talked about his ministry to the Lord, to the church, and now to the lost. Sum it up in one word, evangelizing. And it comes out in verse 21. He was solemnly testifying of repentance toward God and of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That was his message to the lost. Repentance, faith. Repentance toward God, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance is the negative side, faith is the positive side. They both go together. You can't have one without the other. You can't have saving faith without repentance, and you can't have true repentance without faith. Because in repentance, we turn from sin in faith, we turn to Christ. It's all one motion. But we just identified it as two different things because we can understand it better that way. So repentance is turning from sin. It's doing a 180. Folks, you cannot be a Christian unless you repent. The Bible talks about in Luke 24 that we are to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. If you have not repented, you're not forgiven. It's just as simple as that. You're still in your sins. 
And unless you repent, you'll die in your sins. That's why Jesus said, repent or perish. So repentance is absolutely essential if you want to be saved. So what is it? It's turning from sin, and it includes doing that with your mind, your emotions, and your will. The whole person is involved in repentance. So with your mind, there's a knowledge of sin. You understand what you've done is sin. Okay? With your emotions, there's a sorrow for sin. You feel sorrowful because you have offended God. And with your will, you forsake it. You take actions, you take measures to leave it behind, to forsake it. To, when you forsake something, you're, you're, you're saying goodbye to it. Right? You're, you're, I'm leaving you, I'm going this direction. We must forsake sin. That's, that's, that's doing it with your will, making a, a positive decision. And without this, none of us will ever be saved. You can attend church all you want. You can get baptized. You can go to Bible studies. You can talk religion all you want. If you don't repent, you won't be saved. So repentance towards God. That was Paul's message to the lost. G you Gentiles, you Jews, you must repent. You must change your mind about the way you've been living and about who Jesus is. And you must embrace him as your Messiah, your Lord, and your Savior. And you must follow him for the rest of your life. Repentance toward God. Why repentance toward God? Think about David and his sin with Bathsheba. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against her husband. Terribly, he had him murdered. He sinned against the whole nation because he was their king. And he had failed in representing what a godly leader ought to be before the nation. But when he comes to write Psalm 51, he says, against you and you only have I sinned and done this great evil in your sight. David knew what, what repentance toward God was. If your repentance is just towards your spouse or your child or your friend or your neighbor, you haven't repented really. Your repentance has to be toward God. You've offended your creator, your, the living God. You... you you must feel sorrow for that sin against him and turn from it. Secondly, he said, faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So what is faith? We've talked about repentance. What's faith? Faith is simply turning to Christ, grasping Christ, cleaving to Christ, refusing to let go of Christ, believing who Christ is and all he has done, he becomes the, the sole object of your life. He becomes the center of your universe, and everything now revolves around Jesus Christ. Faith is the hand that lays hold of Christ. Faith sees Jesus as your righteousness, and it lays hold of him so that now you're clothed with his righteousness before God. Faith in Christ means I've stopped trusting myself and my righteousness and now I'm trusting in Jesus and his righteousness. And the Bible teaches us that both faith and repentance are gifts of God's grace. So they come from God as gifts, but we are still responsible to exercise both repentance and faith in him. And don't tell me, or don't ask me how to reconcile those two ideas, because I don't really know. I just know the Bible teaches that. I'm responsible to repent, but I know that repentance comes as a gift of his grace as well. So these are the marks of a child of God, repentance and faith. He starts his Christian life by repenting and believing, and he continues every step of his Christian life by repenting and believing. That's how he grows. He, there's another thing in his life he realizes, I've got to repent of that, and I've got to believe that the Lord's going to deliver me from that. And by, he goes from glory to glory as he's repenting and believing day by day by day. So there we see Paul's ministry to the lost, evangelism, calling them to repentance, calling them to Christ. So are there people in your life that you could emulate Paul here? Who are the people in our lives that we could call to repentance and call to faith in Jesus Christ? We ought not be content if that's not happening at all. If we can go months, years, without ever talking to someone about their soul or about Christ, boy, that's, that's, that's terrible. And I'm afraid that's what happens in too many of us as Christians. We can go a long, long time in between encounters.
Uh, we, we should be looking for them and praying for opportunities to share Christ's gospel. So let me just reiterate to you the marks of Paul's life. It was a life of service, humility, compassion, perseverance and suffering, faithfully teaching all the truth, and of calling sinners to repentance and faith. So look at those six areas this morning. Is there one of those six that stands out to you more than others, like, that I'm lacking here, I'm really lacking, I need, I, need to, I need to do business with the Lord about this particular area of my life because I'm just not involved in this way. I'll just repeat them again and think about each one. Serving, serving the Lord, humility, compassion expressed by tears, perseverance in hardship, faithfully teaching, not some of the truth, all of it, and calling others to repentance and faith. Those were the marks of Paul's life. Those are the marks he's telling these elders, I want you guys to live th this kind of a life as well. I want you to have these marks in your life. And we can learn from it ourselves. We're not elders, we're not apostles, but we're Christians. And these are marks of Christianity, right? Every Christian should see in some measure or another these six things happening in his life. So take special notice if there's one of those and just take that to the Lord in prayer. Ask the Lord to begin working in. Do you ever do that? Do you ever pray about the areas you want to grow in? I think we ought to. When we notice there's something in our life that's not good, let's take it to the Lord and ask the Lord to change that and pray about that thing. That's it for today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Paul's example and we do pray that you would help us, Lord, to be people that would spend our lives serving. Help us, Lord, to forsake pride and become humble men and women of God, to show compassion towards others, Lord, not to give up in the midst of trials, but to persevere, Lord, to teach others all of the truth and not just the parts that we think they're going to like, but all of it. And, Lord, to call sinners to repentance, to turn from their sin and to turn to Jesus to be saved. Lord, would you give us opportunities, even this very week, so that maybe next Sunday, some one of us will be able to share that, Lord, you led them to an opportunity, and they, they took it, and they shared about Jesus Christ, and this is what happened. Lord, I pray that those kinds of things would be taking place more and more in our midst. So we ask you to make this real and true, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.